Welcome back to Small Business Big Lessons, a Buffer original series. My name is Haley. I work at Buffer, and I am so happy to be here with you for another episode in this incredible series where we're sharing business stories like you've never heard before. We've talked to so many incredible small business owners, and we're going to show their success, different ways that they are doing good, and what you can learn from these incredible businesses and the people who run them. In this episode, we're going to be looking at turning down big money. When you start out as a small business owner, it might seem like the dream to be offered large sums of money from big players with deep pockets. Big money can provide security, it can open up new possibilities, garner some publicity, and let's be honest, it can be validating to get huge offers for a company that you've built. But when you explore these offers and think about the long term, you may start to see all of the strings attached and realize that more often than not, with great offers come great compromises. So what do you do when these opportunities start to knock on your door? If you take that big offer, you could end up down a path that leads you far from your purpose, but if you turn it down, you may regret that missed opportunity forever. In this episode, we're bringing you stories about saying yes to the right opportunities and saying no for the right reasons. To start most kinds of businesses, you need money. It could be just enough to cover some basic materials or equipment or a more significant amount to hire a working space or even a bigger injection of cash to hire your first team. But the right way to raise funds for your business can vary depending on the size of your company and how you want to build it. It can also depend on your sector, your needs, and what you can offer investors, as Holly explains. There's not just one way to raise money, and I think big money gets a lot of media attention and it gets a lot of press. Fundraising is such a broad question, and oftentimes when people come, they think it's a very narrow question. You know, their concern is just raising money and they don't realize the broad spectrum of possibilities. And so I'm currently dealing with three clients right now who are all in the fundraising process, but it's really interesting because one client is a direct-to-consumer packaged good company who's doing venture capital. One client is in a home space and they are doing debt but through sort of like these social finance funds. And then I have another client who's in the restaurant industry that's solely doing equity crowdfunding for their raise. So it's just three very different examples of how we can get money for our business. And I like to tell people there's no right or wrong answer about which path you take. You have to understand, do we want to release control, right? Do I want to release equity control parts of my company? Do I want to take on debt and take on more risk and be held to paying that back? Or do I want to bring on a ton of investors and build this community that are going to go on to continue to support my restaurant even when the raise is over? So those are the types of questions you have to ask yourself about, again, it comes down to this experience that you're going to have. What type of experience do you want? And really exploring all the possibilities and not just thinking that it has to be one way. One headline grabbing method of raising a lot of money quickly is to seek venture capital or VC funding. VC funds focus on early stage investment, particularly in businesses that have a high risk, high return potential. As a condition of their investment, venture capital firms often have a lot of say over how the businesses they invest in are run. So if you take VC money, be prepared to lose a certain amount of control over your business. 
Generally speaking, the VC model is to spread money and therefore risk across a large range of companies, expecting the majority of those businesses to fail, but hoping that a handful of them become highly successful. The hope is that the income from those few winners more than covers the losses from the less successful ventures. Angel investors are individuals who provide capital to startups, focusing on lower level investments compared to VC funds. Once they've invested, their level of involvement in the day-to-day -day running of your business can vary from deal to deal and often depends on the level of risk involved. I'm Rand Fishkin. I'm the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro, which makes audience research software. Rand believes wholeheartedly in the power of small business and in the democratization of information. He believes that long-term sustainable growth and long-term sustainable relationships are the key to a healthy business and a healthy life as a founder. Rand also recognizes some of the issues associated with VC and angel fundraising methods and has spent a good amount of time researching alternative routes. So right now, unfortunately, in the tech and startup ecosystem, there's a huge focus on venture dollars and angel dollars that lead to venture. And that is because those forms of capital have really dominated the conversation. They dominate the media ecosystem. They dominate most founders' awareness of how one could even fund a business. SparkToro, in its own way, is trying to change that with our little pebble in the ocean. We open sourced our funding documents and a few startups have used our model and our structure to build funding structures of their own. Geraldine and I, my wife and I are also investors in uh, Tiny Seed. Um, we're looking into funding Calm Capital next year. Tiny Seed described themselves as startup funding for the rest of us. Well, Calm Capital offer an investment model that focuses on patient, purposeful growth with terms that are easy to understand. Both these funds aim to offer something to entrepreneurs and investors that is more accessible and less pressure than VC or angel funding. Rand thinks that this sort of approach offers a more sustainable alternative for people on both sides of the investments. And these kinds of investment models are unusual. They're hard to find. There are not many of them out there, frustratingly, but I think that they can offer a really compelling alternative, both for investors and for founders and builders. The reasons that that is, is because if you are an investor, you know, if we put together an investment fund and we invest in 500 companies, the math works out where, you know, 480 of them go bankrupt and return nothing. And the remaining, you know, 20, maybe there's a few big hitters in there and a few mid-sized successes. We can make the math work, right? We can beat the market or meet the market returns with those numbers. But if you are an investor, you know, with a few million dollars of capital to deploy, you know, 25,000 or $100,000 at a time, you can't get to 500 companies. You can't build a portfolio approach like a venture firm could. And so the math just doesn't work out. You know, statistically speaking, 500 is the minimum number of companies you need to have to get that market beating return. And so an alternative way, in my opinion, a better way to go about this is to instead say, we can build a portfolio of five companies. Maybe I can invest in 10 companies, but that's really the max. And if you have to do it that way, the only way you can be a successful investor is if most of those companies succeed, even if it's on a small scale. What I believe is that 
If you don't force companies to pursue hypergrowth, they are more likely to survive long term. And survival long term gives options for being profitable and giving off dividends to investors. It means that at some point someone might acquire them for two or three or five times, maybe 10 times the amount that you put in, right? So you're making smaller returns for each company, but you're not losing your entire stake in a bunch of startups. Big offers for investment can come at any time in your business's lifetime. But of course, they're especially common when you start to see more success. It's at this point when you've put a lot of time and work into your company and are starting to see the success most people dream of that it can be most important to have your purpose defined and know what your goals are. Because for some, selling is the right move. That means that founders can have the largest impact possible. But it's a very personal question. And for others, the journey of building the company and having an impact at a smaller scale is more important than selling. My name is Joel Gascoigne. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Buffer. And Buffer is a software tool for small businesses to help them with their organic marketing. In 2014, Joel received a huge offer to sell the company. The proposal brought up a ton of questions for Joel around his purpose and vision for what the company could be and his place in it. We've been running the company. We've been growing very healthily for a few years by that point. And we were approached by a large public tech company. It's not really that many, you know, it would be pretty obvious which one. And it wasn't the first offer we'd had, but it eventually became the largest offer for the company that we'd ever had. It was nine figures. And we got more and more involved in the discussions over a number of weeks and months. And for me personally, and my co-founder and the executive team at the time, it became really a kind of existential uh, questioning exercise and just a reflection on like, you know, what does that mean if we take it or don't take it? It was great because it led to really thinking deeply about like, why are we doing this? What more can we do here? What do we gain if we take it? And what do we lose if we take it? Like, what do we give up? And I think it was clear that we still had a lot of further success to go, a lot more growth, a lot more we could do. When I really thought deeply about the decision, where I really gained clarity was more in the cultural choices we made, especially the movements that we had ended up being a really big part of. So at the time that was remote work, which is now really mainstream, but at the time we were just in a handful of companies that were exploring working in a remote way. And then the other one was transparency, which to this day, we're probably still one of the most transparent companies in the world. And so I thought a lot about those two movements and just where we were at with them. And they actually both felt like things that if we stopped, then they wouldn't continue their momentum. There was no chance that that company would have kept us remote or the level of transparency. Definitely for me, it changed a lot of how I think about Buffer. There's not been a, a single moment where I've had a regret, which I'm, I think I'm very fortunate to be able to say, because I know that's not necessarily always the case. And I do know founders that have turned down offers like that and later regretted. Samantha and Andrea put a lot of thought into how they wanted to fund the setting up of Harlow. Like Rand, they could see the inherent misalignment with their values in taking VC money, and so decided to look at alternative ways to raise the money they needed that resonated with their own beliefs for the company they wanted to build. 
The path we took to funding relates directly to our belief that we didn't want to build a company that is growth at all costs. And for us personally, we felt like the VC route would be indicative of that, that if we took VC money, that we would have to compromise certain aspects of the business that we just weren't prepared to do. I don't know that a lot of VCs would necessarily want to invest in a company that is as flexible as we are, but really we just felt that doing a friends and family round was more aligned to how we wanted to build the company. It would allow us to move at a slightly slower pace while still being aggressive and hitting our goals, but it's really important to us that we hit profitability. So we don't want to take $20, $50 million in funding. We would like to take a small amount, build the business, get profitable, and have that fuel future growth. So we know that taking big money from VC firms isn't the right fit for every company. But deciding not to go down the big money route can come with its own set of challenges that impact how you operate as a business. One of the challenges of not going the VC route and taking less money is that we do need to run the business very lean. So we are constantly having conversations around where we invest and when because we simply can't do it all. So we can't just come out of the gates and spend, you know, $50,000 a month on paid advertising to grow and get the word out there. Again, that kind of comes back to the benefit of community and building, you know, building your audience in a sustainable and lean way. We don't have a giant bank account to lean on, and so we have to be pretty scrappy and frugal. I think that can also be a little bit of a superpower. It really forces us to focus and to really assess what is most important. By taking less money from more sources, you can simultaneously raise funds and build a knowledge base that you can lean on for advice and help as and when you need it. This is something that's worked really well for Harlow. One of the benefits of going a friends and family round is we got to be pretty picky about who invested in our company and thoughtful about that also. We have a wide range of individuals that invested in Harlow. And so we lean on our investors all the time. If we're struggling with any aspect of the business, there's somebody on the cap table that can help us out. And we were also able to be picky about the types of people um, that invested in the business. And we're really proud of the fact that over 50% of our investors are female. While Harlow raised money close to home through friends and family, Becky and Hugh went one further and put all of their personal savings into setting up Painter. Committing their hard-earned cash in this way forced them to be frugal, but also made them get creative. We started Painter with our own savings, which was really nerve-wracking. We were both working full-time, still pretty early on in our careers, so these weren't big savings. And that covered everything from web design to buying the font that we made our first logo with to buying the fabric for batch number one and part of the manufacturing as well. So we really had to make that money go far. And I think that was really important because it was our own money and it wasn't an infinite amount. So we had to be really careful. We had to make decisions that we felt were the right ones. We had to really consider those. I think also... Having a constraint definitely makes you more creative with your outcome. Because it was a finite amount, we wanted to make to order because we couldn't pay for our manufacturing with our savings. So that actually set off our whole business model and has continued the way that we work today. 
Hugh recognizes that different types of companies will fit different types of investment. So forming a clear idea of the kind of business you want to build is essential to do before seeking outside finance. When it comes to starting a business and you're starting it with your own money, I think you treat it much differently than if you're starting it with somebody else's money. If it's someone else's money, you might be a bit more relaxed the way you spend the money, especially depending on how much money you've raised. Venture capitalists sometimes belittle the idea of a lifestyle business because they think, oh yeah, you don't want to become a, a unicorn or a $1 billion company. It's like, no, but I think you've completely got the wrong end of the stick when they come to lifestyle businesses. Like we pour our whole lives into this thing. We put our own money into this thing. We want to make sure that thing works. We're not taking money from outsiders. So it has to work. So we're building real businesses, not businesses that we hope that one day we're going to flip or sell to be able to make money. We want our business model and our business to be sustainable, as in it'll be around for the next 10 20, 30 plus years. Like, we love what we do. Like, we want to be doing this for as long as we can. As long as we can keep getting away with it, <laughs> like, we'll keep doing it. Painter's success hasn't gone unnoticed by investors looking for a piece of a thriving small business. But such is the clarity of Becky and Hugh's vision that they know this sort of investment is incompatible with the things that they love about their business. Since launching Painter, we've had Jack as a seller in minutes. And obviously, people from the outside world have seen this and they've seen that our business is working well. And we have had offers of investment over the years. And we've turned every single one of them down purely because as soon as you take that money, you lose control. It's like you can, you have to start making decisions with other people in mind. And that is the people who want to return from investment. And we want to make sure that we can continue making decisions that they might not ever bring a return on investment. It's like, we just want to do them because for us, they seem like the right thing to do. They seem like fun. It feels like, okay, people will enjoy this. I'm sure there's amazing examples of when people get investment from people who have completely shared values, but there's all too many examples where that isn't the case. And we don't want to compromise on our values. So what are your options if you find yourself in a situation where your vision and values are misaligned with those of your investors? Well, in 2018, Joel decided that the only way to move forward with what he wanted to achieve at Buffer was to buy out his main VC investors. That decision for me was really based around ensuring that we had investors that were on board with whichever direction we wanted to take the company. And going back to when we raised that funding from those investors in 2014, there were some very open discussions around the possible various paths that Buffer could go. And we made it very clear that we might want to go a path where we stay independent long term, we don't sell. This is something that we baked into the terms of that investment. And so that's what they invested into. And I think it was really set up as like we could still continue to raise funding and go with the more traditional VC kind of path or we might go this other way stay independent so it just kind of came to a head over time and I had to make that decision of how do I ensure that we don't have this like risk or this pressure that we don't necessarily want and ultimately for me I just recognized that it was going to start to really limit our options in terms of the path we could go and stop us from being able to stay independent long term. So in the end, it was somewhat straightforward because we'd already talked about this possibility. So we followed essentially the terms that were baked into the investment 
in practice, it wasn't quite as clean as, as that. It was, you know, this negotiation and there's some pretty difficult conversations and things within it. But it was definitely absolutely the right thing for us and a big relief for me when we bought out those investors. And I think we've been able to, in the years since 2018, do some like really unique things like the four day work week and just some of the other things that we continue to do and think about. Uh, that I think it just would have been a lot harder if we still had those investors on board. But we have actually, since then, we found investors that are much more aligned. Here's more from Holly. One thing that people tend to overlook when they are in the fundraising process is that they should be vetting the investors themselves, right? So they always think that they're being vetted by investors, and they are, and investors are doing their due diligence. But you as the entrepreneur need to do your due diligence on the people that you're taking money from as well, and asking ourselves, do our cultures align? Do our values align? So it might be a fund, a big fund, or it might be an individual. But you still want to understand if there's mutual respect for values, and especially especially if there's mutual respect for your vision of where the company is going, because you want to make sure that you're not taking money and then having to release the control over your vision. And oftentimes I see people turn down big money when they realize that they would have to release control of that. And it's not what they believe in. So when discussing offers of investment, it's important to be open and clearly communicate to potential investors your vision for the future of the business. Your investors will essentially become your business partners, so it's important to be mindful of their expectations and what they're hoping to get out of the deal. If those expectations are misaligned with your own plans, then you will certainly have problems further down the line. We have been approached by a number of people at a number of different organizations that are trying to, you know, make a connection with us and a relationship with us early on with the intention of probably funding us later. We talk to those people. We have conversations with them. We are very honest and transparent about what we're building and how we're building it. I think, you know, Andrew and I always say that we don't close doors. We're open to talking to people that take a lot of different paths and that do things in different ways. But we are very honest and transparent about what we are doing and why and that we are going to stay true to that. Ari at Zingerman's is a huge proponent of visioning. Visioning is the process of defining what success looks like to you at some point in the future, and then committing to using that destination to inform your business decisions. You then make better choices by evaluating whether or not they get you closer to or further away from that vision. Having a distinct vision of the future made with a clear head can make decision-making quicker and easier, especially in times of crisis. People aren't always conscious of it, but they're all turning things down all day long. It's really just, are you turning them down in a reactive way or are you turning them down in a purposeful way? So for us, it's a purposeful decision, not reactive. This is where we've made a mindful, intentional, thoughtful, community-based decision about creating this future. And then once you have that, it's easier to make decisions to go forward towards it. And it's way easier to make decisions about what to not do because it's pretty obvious that they don't fit with what you're doing. It's also important to not fundraise when you're in a stressful situation. And this is where planning ahead can become important because when we're in a stressful situation, we sometimes undermine our own values because we feel like we need that money or we're not sure if any other money is going to come through. So this is where staying ahead of the game and planning ahead is very helpful. 
have we turned down offers all the time? I mean, not like every day, but I don't know, every week, every two weeks, every month, we get some inquiry from somewhere. Sometimes it's another city nearby here. Sometimes it's, I got property in New York. Sometimes it's, you know, we're going to do this project in London. I, you know, it's all well-meaning and I'm honored that people are asking. So strong is Ari's commitment to his vision for Zingerman's that he was able to turn down a huge offer from one of the world's biggest and most well-known companies, Disney. It wasn't that it was a final thing, but they had narrowed down their field to, I don't remember, 20, 30, 40, 50 restaurants that were like the finalists to open a new restaurant row or something like that. And I've never been to Disney, so I'm speaking from a distance emotionally and intellectually too. But there was no point in going into the process and spending a lot of time having meetings and going through numbers and legal questions when I already knew that we weren't going to do it. There's not a lot to talk about. And the longest part of the conversation was how long they wanted to explain to me why I wasn't understanding how great an opportunity it was. And I tried to say, I'm honored that you're asking. It's a really great compliment, but it doesn't fit our vision. And finally, at the end, I just said, you know, if you want to open Disney in Ann Arbor, then we could talk. To me, it seems like normal human behavior. I don't know, you know, if, if somebody's married, like you're married and you envision you're having this life with your partner and that you're going to raise your kids and then somebody comes and goes, you know, dude, I'm going to give you $20 million, but you got to move to rural Montana and leave your family in Amsterdam. And in 30 years, you can come back, but it's really a lot of money. They would say no. And that's a good decision, I think. And if it's not a good decision, they could change their vision. But if you've imagined the life that you want, why would you not try to stick to it? By defining and pulling into sharp focus what success looks like, you can take a clearer view on whether taking someone up on an offer gets you to where you truly want to be. Having clarity of vision can reduce some of the psychological effects of being on the receiving end of a large offer. The money piece gets odd for people. There's a lot of emotional issues that we all have around money in modern society, and I'm not judging money. It's really just what we believe about it and the value that we attach to it. I'll suggest that anybody who's living a great life that they feel really terrific about is turning down opportunities. And the question is, what's your vision? And do you have one, which most people don't? And we have a vision and it's from the heart. It's not a strategic assessment of what somebody else thinks we should do or could do. So when you write the story of your life and you believe in it, and that story in our case says that we only open businesses here in the Ann Arbor area because I slash we have a very strong belief about doing business in the community of which we're a part. And I'm not judging those who do it differently. I'm just not interested in it. It doesn't fit the ethical and artistic model or whatever of life that I want to create. Having outside investors can really change the dynamic of a company. Sourcing money from friends and family or even your own savings account creates an emotional connection to that money and can make you work harder and smarter in order to honor that connection. The flip side is that when the main source of finance is coming from outside of your immediate circle, those investors may have less of a connection to your business. I do think about limiting just the pure amount of the company that investors own because I think it's really powerful to have a large portion of the company owned by the people that are actually the, the ones working on it week in, week out, and putting that energy, that life into it, and not just the money, the finances, the funding into it. And I think there's a very significant difference. 
for me, it's a little like running a farm here in southeastern Michigan, calling in what to do from the office in New York. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And it's a little too colonial for me because it's somebody a long ways away deciding what's right for the local space. And even if they try to allow for the local space, they're not standing in the soil. Like, they're not feeling the soil. They're not smelling the soil. Rand also has a great point about working at these kind of high-risk ventures where financing comes in remotely. I don't understand how these high-growth, high-risk companies can attract people to them, right? Like, who wants to work in an environment where it's like, okay, now, probably next year we'll be out of business and have no jobs. But, (laughs) what a pitch! As an employee, it's not like you get rewarded, you know, in these outsized ways, right? Founders are going to be fine. Generally speaking, founders, most founders who start companies, they come from wealthy families, like they're already doing fine. But for employees, that's not the case. You're taking this high risk and you are not going to get rewarded the right way. I wrote a pamphlet called The Art of Business, which is my belief that business and life are like art or music or film. And the business that we create, the life that we create is our art. And I have these memories of listening to interviews or reading interviews with musicians who would say like, we lost control of the music to the label. And a lot of that is what pushed me to make the decision to not work with the big publishing world and to do the books here. So we're like farm to table with the books and the pamphlets. And there's problems that go with that. You're constrained, but it's the constraints of your choosing and you're choosing to make your art in a way you feel really good about rather than making art you don't really like, but you get more money for (laughs) While it may seem tempting to accept that big money offer, there are key questions that you have to ask yourself in order to determine if it's the right path for your business. Questions like, am I willing to give up control? Are these investors aligned with my motivations? And does taking this money get me closer to the vision for my business? If the answer to any of these questions is no, then it may be worth seeking out alternative sources of funding for your company. Or maybe you can get creative with your own savings, take out a small bank loan, or find a knowledgeable group of investors closer to home that can offer not only money, but also experience and support. Or it could be that VC really is the best path for you and your business, and that's totally okay too. Whatever route you choose to go down, making the correct decisions for your business is key, and saying no for the right reasons could be the best business decision you ever make. In the next episode, we'll be looking at when businesses intentionally stay small. We have so many great business owners and small businesses in these episodes so far. I'm excited for you to hear more from them in the next episode about staying small. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us at buffer.com slash community to continue the conversation with us. We're looking forward to seeing you there in that community, and I'll see you in the next episode. This episode of Small Business Big Lessons was written and produced by Rowan Bishop at Message Heard. Script edited by me, Haley Griffiths at Buffer, and interviews were conducted by Umber Bhatti at Buffer. Be sure to subscribe to Small Business Big Lessons on your preferred podcast platform to keep up with the latest episodes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a review.